ahead and take a moment here to just look at all the squares on our screen here. And I'll, there we go, get a little larger here. <laughs> it is good to be with you all this morning. Again, it is such a joy to join with all of you from wherever you're uh, with us this morning. It, there's so many places. It is a delight and a beautiful moment. And this is one of the positives amidst great trauma that we are all experiencing in that we can connect with Unitarian Universalists wherever they are. We sometimes feel alone as Unitarian Universalists. And so this is a wonderful, joyful thing. For those of you that know me, this will probably be an amusing place to start, but I've been a minister now long enough that many of the processes and structures that were in place when I sought credentialing from the Unitarian Universalist Association no longer exist. It's just how things unfold, right? Change occurs. Sometimes we find ourselves being able to say, let me tell you, back in my day, I had to walk uphill both ways to seminary in the snow sooner than we'd like. You get the idea. Many of you have had that own your own experience of that. But imagine this. Eight years ago, I found myself on a plane to San Francisco to meet with a group that was called, and you don't have to remember this or take notes on this, the Regional Subcommittee on Candidacy, the RSCC. I don't need to get into all of the details of what one needs to do to become a Unitarian Universalist minister, either then or now. Just trust me that it is a laborious process. A couple of you here are figuring that out for yourselves this morning, and that's for good reason. But this committee with its exceptionally long name was there as an initial gateway to pursuing ministry. It had its faults, Wonderful people that should have been granted candidacy, the next step in becoming a minister, would be turned away for a year and sometimes would never come back. Maybe it was just because they had a bad day. And sometimes people that had absolutely no business pursuing ministry would get a pass, only to be turned away after spending $100,000 on seminary. Of course, human institutions are flawed and we know this. I'd love to tell you this morning about adventures in Chinatown or Cow's Hollow where to get the best dim sum in San Francisco or which parts of the wharf have the greatest oddities and shops. I would love to wax poetic about how the city really is, how the playwright Tony Kushner said, described it in Angels in America, piles of trash, but lapidary like rubies and obsidian. Instead, there's a comment that lingers with me from that committee meeting, and it has been with me ever since that time. As my meeting was Wrapping up with them, one of the panel members looked me right in the eyes and said, Brian, we've noticed that you've done a great deal of justice work around LGBTQ rights and racial equity, but what have you done for yourself? The question might as well have been in Russian. I think I said, excuse me? And they repeated and elaborated. You noted your privilege as a white male. What have you done for yourself about that? The question might as well have still been in Russian. Not a clue what was being asked of me. And they asked again. I replied with as honest an answer I could muster in that moment. I'm still figuring it out, I replied. The panelists smiled at me quite widely. He knew he had stumped me. 
Now, one of the critiques of that committee throughout its history is that it was full of gotcha moments. Uh, and it never really felt quite good to experience that, but it was necessary in that moment. And of course, I left that meeting. I passed a wet behind the ears seminarian, but the question lingered with me to this moment. I know today I could answer that question in a heartbeat, but there's more to it than just some seminarian being stumped. That question is something I feel Unitarian Universalists haven't been good at asking. Sometimes we have the answers, but we don't necessarily ask it. What are we doing for ourselves, for our own inner work around issues of injustice? Now, I'm lucky to have had Unitarian Universalism in my life for a long time. And we are a people that love to get out there and do things. We're impatient about it sometimes, which isn't always a bad thing. If there's one takeaway from the deep, wondrous, heretical history of Unitarianism and Universalism, like little sparks of flame and hope all across the world, it's that perennial Bible verse from the book of James, faith without works is dead. And of course, there can be a companion verse from 1 Thessalonians, prove all things, hold fast that which is good. Two foundational verses that have been with our tradition since the very beginning. I guess that's two takeaways from our history, but don't get me started. Our history is phenomenal. And those words, faith without works and prove all things are constant companions to us, whether we read them aloud or not. Which brings me to this moment right now, here in 2021. Just over a year ago, this congregation adopted the eighth principle of Unitarian Universalism. And if you need a refresher, here's the words, we covenant to affirm and promote journeying towards spiritual wholeness by working to build a beloved, a diverse multicultural beloved community by our actions that accountably dismantle racism and other oppressions in our institutions and ourselves. Now you can go ahead and try to memorize it like I did. I think I flip, flipped a few of the words, but that's the heart of it right there. Of course, that isn't the final wording and it's a work in progress. But here in Lexington, Kentucky, we were amongst the first 20 congregations and communities to adopt the eighth principle. And I need to reflect briefly, just for all of us that are gathered here this morning on how that unfolded for us. Because it was like a swift and mighty wind blowing through the congregation. Just over a year ago in the summer of 2019, one of our young adults came to us, uh, Maya Wade Harper, many of you know her. And she shared her experiences from the Midwest Leadership School. And it was there she learned about the eighth principle. And of course, she shared, why haven't I heard about this before? And I shared, well, I've only heard murmurings of this. Let's dig a little deeper. And it had my support from the very beginning. It was shared with our board of directors. And of course, they supported it. And then a task force came together. Buttons were made, flyers were handed out. Many of you know this story, town halls. Some of you lived this story. Town halls were hosted, questions were answered. I had several pastoral meetings with people that wanted to talk it through. Some wanted to hear pros and cons. Some wanted to hear my opinion. Others just wanted to share their worries. And those conversations happened all throughout the congregation. The important thing here is that it was about relationships in the end. All of the literature and buttons were lovely. But what happened on December 8th, 2019 at our congregational meeting was the real deal. That's what this was all about in the end. Unitarian Universalists have a lot to say about congregational polity, but on that day, we didn't just talk about it. We lived it. 
people spoke, they shared their stories, and minds and hearts were opened. Even the two no votes expressed their support in the end for the congregation. And there were comments about how people showed up not really caring about the eighth principle. But after hearing the stories from members of color here in this community, they, were, they, they became ardent supporters. They heard the stories, they heard the joys and the sorrows of their beloved friends. That's what it was about. And it was a beautiful moment. Many of you remember that. And I say this in retrospect because my role as your minister was to be your minister no matter how that vote went. Not many people know this, but a minister's only job at a congregational meeting is to be at the service of the board. And at that meeting, I didn't need to say a thing because what unfolded was not a principled discussion. It didn't require official reverend commentary. What unfolded wasn't a conversation about ethics and we weren't talking about procedure. We were talking about relationships with ourselves, with each other, and with Unitarian Universalism. And I believe that's what led to the success of that day. It was about covenant and community. And that should be the heartbeat of every single thing we do. And so here we are just over a year later. There were grand plans in place, grand visions. And then the pandemic hit all of us. And some would look at our effort and wonder if we've done anything with it or if we've done enough. There's always more to do, but again, and I've been saying this often, we must resist the demands of perfection. And so here's what I've noticed as your minister a year later. The way we talk to one another, the way we gather, the way we relate has changed. Instead of rushing to judgment and condemnation, people are asking curious questions more and more of one another. They're taking a breath before responding in our community. The push for action in our justice work is becoming clearer and clearer with every day. It would have been so easy to adopt the eighth principle and rest on our laurels, but no, we are emerging from our seven acres and starting to rebuild our relationships in the community. The biggest examples of this would be our emerging relationships with the NAACP and BUILD, which stands for Building a United Interfaith Lexington uh, through Direct Action. Amidst this, and so many other examples I could list, there is a great unknown before us. And there are many questions that we have yet to answer. How will this impact us still? Where will this take us? Now it might seem quite easy to say, congrats church, you've done good and look at how you're relating to one another, right? But to think that is an easy statement to just say, congratulations, you're relating, right? That would cheapen how important relationships are to Unitarian Universalists. When we talk about covenant, we're not just talking about Moses coming down from Mount Sinai. We're not talking about the 10 commandments movie. We are talking about relationship. And the eighth principle asks us to journey towards spiritual wholeness as a community, to dismantle racism and other oppressions in ourselves and institutions as a community, to covenant to affirm and promote as a community. It's not just a boilerplate statement, and that is the risk of having principles that are not creedal. They can fade into the background, always there, decorations on a wall. And as an aside, that's the same risk for creeds too. How many of you, before you were Unitarian Universalists, recited the Nicene Creed for years, not caring what it said? 
we commit as Unitarian Universalists to a different way. I spoke a few months ago about how our principles are similar to Zen koans. They're not riddles, they're not puzzles, but they're companions for the journey. They work on us, through us, and in us, just as we work on them, through, and in them. They're living and breathing for so long as we have breath as Unitarian Universalists, so do our values, so do our principles. And that is the way we aspire to. Not a creed or test of faith, not a piece of paper on a wall, but companions for this life. And companions change. They grow, they adapt, they live, they breathe, and sometimes they even die. In 1985, we added the seventh principle, which states, we covenant to affirm and promote respect for the interdependent web of existence of which we are a part. Nowadays, in 2021, those words just roll off the tongue for many of us. But in talking with colleagues who served and lived during that adoption process, I was just a year old, by the way, it wasn't unanimously well-received. Objections to the seventh principle range from, well, what on earth does this mean? You can't change the principles. Does this mean we're pagans now? Is this too emotional for us? Are we losing our rational core? And so on. People left congregations. People sometimes came back, some didn't. But can you imagine a Unitarian Universalism without the seventh principle today? That is where we find ourselves right now, amidst change, amidst debate, worry, hope, and excitement. And this is an opportunity for all of us. And I really am speaking to all of us, Lexington, Louisville, Bowling Green, Atlanta, around the Georgia region, I assumed Atlanta, but wherever you are in Georgia, all across our country, all across from wherever you're joining us this morning, this is an opportunity far and wide to imagine a Unitarian Universalism for 2021. When you love someone or something, you need to be prepared to let go of previous notions when growth comes inevitably bounding along. And so it is with all of us, which goes counter to what many of us feel church should be. When we speak of sanctuary, we often think of something unchanging, but it isn't so with Unitarian Universalism. And so here is the promise of adopting the eighth principle. And for us in Lexington, continuing to figure out just what this means. The Commission on Institutional Change, and if you haven't read the report, I invite you to dig into the report. Just, you don't have to read the whole thing cover to cover unless you want to, but dig into their recommendations. The Commission on Institutional Change had some hard truths for us to wrestle with. And here's an example. The Commission writes, justice making is not a substitute for a coherent theology and faithful justice-making requires a liberatory theology. I feel like that could be a footnote to the entire book of James in the Christian scriptures. Faith without works is dead and make sure your theology is centered in liberation. This is where it gets really exciting for me today. We can have our individualism, we can have our rationality, we can have our freedom, things that we often talk about with Unitarian Universalism. Those are just fine and dandy. But that is not what will sustain us in the end. But we are all being asked the question that that committee asked me years ago, what are we doing for ourselves? What are we doing for our church, our fellowships, and what are we doing for the wider community? 
What does our long wondrous history have to teach us about the power of our heresy here and now on this day in 2021? A heresy that today says with confidence, justice will roll down like waters. Love and hope and beloved community will win the day, no matter what any politician or riotous mob would have us believe. And there it is in the bedrock, down in the marrow of our bones, a liberatory call to journey towards spiritual wholeness, to dismantle oppression and to build beloved community. And so say it plain and say it true. This is who we want to be as a community of faith in the world we inhabit. The eighth principle is a call to not offload justice to this community or that committee, and that's something we pencil in on our calendars, but to instead make it a faithful journey, a commitment to a world we do not yet inhabit but long for. Just as our seventh principle asks us to imagine our connection to everything, in a different way, just as our sixth principle dares us to imagine a world of peace and justice, just as our fifth principle has us proclaiming every vote is sacred and we are a faith of the conscience, just as the fourth principle journeys with us into the great mystery of life seeking truth and meaning, just as the third principle asks us to set aside petty differences and preferences and live out a radical welcome and encouragement, just as the second reminds us compassion is just as important as justice and just as the first confidently assures us that we, yes, we, you, and I, all of us, everybody have worth and dignity and challenges us in affirming that in people who other religions would shun, who we might even shun. There is a beautiful progression to our principles when you take a look at them. Some may not like it. I'd be perfectly happy if they started with number eight and worked down to number one. But as it is right now, one through eight, they begin with the individual's and they build toward everything. And the eighth principle offers a sobering reminder that after that wondrous feeling of connection with everything, the real work begins. Now I could go on and on here. It is so exciting to live our history. And that's what we're doing as Unitarian Universalists right now. But to us, as we continue this journey and to First Unitarian, and to Bowling Green, and to Georgia, and to wherever else you're joining us from, and to any congregation thinking of the eighth principle, the most important thing is to ground yourself in relationships. That is the best advice anyone could ever give. Make connections, reach across difference, live into your covenants, hear stories, even if they are uncomfortable. Over the past nearly six years, I've served here in Lexington, Kentucky. This is what this place has, albeit with some caution, waded into being ever more a place of connection beyond the wildest dreams of our founders, beyond the wildest dreams of that room of 15 Unitarians with the Reverend Robert T. Weston from Louisville as they were imagining this fellowship, this congregation. And so here we have it this morning. The eighth principle is before us. You've heard the words. You might be looking at the website, but I trust that we won't just let it be on a piece of paper, on a pamphlet, on a button, on a website. I trust that what we will do is ask ourselves those hard questions, all of us, whether we've adopted the eighth principle or yet to adopt the eighth principle. What will we do and continue to do for ourselves, for each other, for the oppressed and the marginalized, for the wider community crying out for justice, how will those questions continue to journey with us in everything we do 
as Unitarian Universalists. And so, blessed be to all of you this morning, and amen.